You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestoakville.ca. The Father, I pray so reverently and carefully and joyfully at the same time we come before you now. We just consider, Lord, even listening to the beautiful words of that beautiful hymn right now. All the sins, Lord, we've ever committed, the sins of today, the sins of tomorrow, the sins that will be by faith and by the grace of Jesus Christ. We have been washed as white as snow by the blood of Jesus. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you. Just think about that, loved ones. Every sin you've ever committed has been washed clean. Every sin you will ever commit has already been washed clean because of the blood of Jesus Christ. All the vileness, all the hatred, all the greed, all the, all the lust, all the unkindness, all the selfishness, all the idolatry, all the lack of love, all our sin, every single one has been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Awesome. Amazing. Incredible. Beautiful. Please, Lord, draw us to a place where we've never loved you so much because we've never seen so clearly what it means to see the power of the blood and the power of the sacrifice of the one Savior of this world, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Lead us now, Lord. Use this time now to bless you and to give you glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And please find a Bible and open it to Hebrews chapter 10. We're looking at the first 18 verses of Hebrews 10 today. We've been in chapter 9, now we're moving into chapter 10, and we're just going verse by verse, learning together and being Bible students in God's Word and excited to do so. Our sermon title today is, Oh, the blood once and for all. Oh, the blood once and for all. Looking at the sacrifice, the ended all sacrifices today, and again, praying that we will be especially blessed by the richness. This is such rich theology and such rich text that we're in here right now, and I'm just praying God would unusually bless us in this process as we do that. Now, just before we get to God's Word, I want to introduce you to my, to my grandpa. My grandpa, uh, he has been uh, passed away now for about 15 years, but here's a picture of him um, on the screen beside me here. My grandfather, this was uh, William uh, Rex Simons. He went by Rex, and um, he was a minister in the Anglican Church for 41 years, um, in the Evangelical Anglican Church, and uh, he was a man who loved the Word, a man who loved God. He was a simple man, but he was a good man, a faithful man. He was a, a loving man. And wouldn't you know it, I got saved about one year before he passed away, and so I didn't appreciate all that God was doing through him, because there's nothing like the Holy Spirit changing into a new creation to open your eyes to make you value the things that were around you. But again, this is a picture of my grandpa when he was about maybe 28 or 29 years old, and just being ordained, he went to Withcliffe Bible College, University of Toronto, and where he studied again, he went on to be a pastor and minister for 40 plus years. Now, I've been in ministry long enough to know, you make it a decade, it's pretty good. You make it 20 or 30 years, that's, that's really good. You make it 40s, I don't care big church or small church, it's you're serving the Lord and you're preaching the gospel and you're faithfully going through the ordinances in Jesus Christ and you can make it 41 years and be married to the same wife and raise five children and all that kind of stuff and he was moving around in small town Ontario for the most part. When you do that, enough respect, Grandpa, enough respect, all right? And just so much love and appreciation for him and how God has used him and of course him being with the Lord and glory right now. One really quick story just to help you get to know me a little bit and just in my past but also just maybe encourage you how God moves in neat ways. It was the the day where my grandpa was very, very sick, and I went to visit him up at Alliston, Ontario, which where he ended his ministry just south of Barrie. He was lying in a hospital bed, and he was in that place where that incredibly heavy breathing, but he wasn't talking, and there was no sense of kind of consciousness from him, but I went in, and I sat there and looking upon him, and I was, again, year in the faith, and agonizing in a sense over what I should do with my life. Should I go into ministry? I was trying to fight against that, and they were looking at him, and I, can, I could bring him to the hospital room, and of course, the floor, and where we work, and a picture looking at him right there, and all these years, and he was the only man in ministry in our family at that time, and I remember looking at him, and I just had this overwhelming sense as I sat there and pondered his life before the Lord, and the Lord said, not in a voice, but just in my spirit, so, so deeply, this phrase that just said, Robbie, 
take the reins. Take the reins. As your grandpa has held the reins of ministry for 40 plus years, I'm now calling you to take up work because the generation after my grandpa, no one did. And then here I was, this, this sinful, ridiculous, selfish teenage boy and moving into his early 20s, had no clue, but I heard the phrase, take the reins. 20 minutes later, I was at home with my grandma who was about five minutes from the hospital. Phone rang, grandpa passed away. And I was the last person to see him, and those are the last words I believe that I heard. And my grandma there, she's weeping all these years of being married to, to the man that she loved and consoling her and being with her. And I drove home later that night, after spending lots of time with my grandma, and just, and, and, and just cried on the way home because this is what the Lord, this is, this is so significant, and here's the life. And, and the power of, of living for Jesus, the power of being used by him, the power of being faithful to the only one who matters. And really, I would bring up Grandpa today, too, because... I, wanna, I wanted to share with you this. This was, this was a, a, a travel communion kit that, that my grandfather was given. And um, this, is, this is amazing, and this is really precious to me. This was passed on to me when I was starting in ministry. And it says here, Reverend W.R. Simons, from the Church of St. Peter in Hamilton, of all places, which I believe is where he got his start there. And this is August 1942. And check this out. I'm not sure how close you can get here. but So this is what he'd travel around to shut-ins who could not make it to church. And this is where you would hold the wine in. The little wine symbolizing, of course, the blood of Jesus Christ. And then in here you would have the the bread symbolizing the body of Jesus Christ, which he would carry this in as well. And then as he would go and he would minister to these people, he would pour the wine into this little flask. How sweet is that, eh? He'd pour the wine to this, and, he, and he'd share it with them. This is the, the blood of Jesus Christ given for you. And then, and then this, little, and this, and this, and this little tray, this little bread tray, he would hand to the shut-ins who were there. It is kind of cute, isn't it? I mean, but, but, but it's, so, it's so precious. And he would minister the body of Christ given for you. And think about the extent of what this was as Grandpa went around again simple man, a humble man, didn't have hardly anything, yet he had the Lord, and he had the gift of life that he carried with him, and he shared the symbols of Jesus Christ as he went from home to home, a person who could not make it there with his little travel communicant. Why would they go to the extent of this? The reason he would go to the extent of taking the symbol of the Lord's Supper with him is because it's the symbol of salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. It's a symbol of the blood. It's a symbol of the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. It's the symbol of our redemption. It's the symbol, listen today, today, today. It's the symbol of the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. It's the symbol of the once and for all sacrifice that was only accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where the author of Hebrews takes us today. He wants us to know and to understand the power of the once for all sacrifice that is symbolized, of course, in the Lord's Supper that we share. So that's what we're seeking to do. To understand and unpack the once for all sacrifice. So here's the question then we're answering today is this. What's the deal with the once for all sacrifice? What's the deal, biblically speaking? Hebrews 10 is going to be very helpful to us today. What's the deal? Here's the deal, all right? Number one, here's the deal. It's a big deal. The once for all sacrifice is a big deal. It's a massive deal. It's a huge deal. And here's why. Because the once for all sacrifice, it substantiated the shadow. The once for all sacrifice, it substantiated the shadow. And some of you are like, what are you talking about, substantiated the shadow? Well, let's find out and let's learn together. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. Notice the contrast there in verse 1. The contrast of shadow with true form of the realities. And notice it says, it could never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So again, I want you to see here, the first is the term shadow. And notice the shadow here is describing the law. The shadow then is describing the old covenant system. So this is a very helpful description. The old covenant was a shadow of the good things that are to come. Now think about what a shadow is in our understanding. A shadow is something insubstantial. A shadow is passing. A shadow shows the shape of an object or a person. It shows the shape of the real thing, but again, it lacks its substance. You can't touch a shadow. You can't grab a shadow. You can't see color in a shadow. So notice again in verse 1, the contrast of shadow with true form. 
The shadow represents an outline. The other one is the real thing. Consider with a shadow, we see an outline. You get a sense of the size and the shape of the object. A shadow gives you an idea of what it looks like, and yet it's not real. Again, you can't touch it. And with a shadow, there are infinite amount of details seemingly left out from the actual object that the shadow is representing. This then, as the author wants us to see, this then is the Old Covenant. The old covenant is a shadow. It gives you an idea of the real thing, but it can never replace the real thing. And again, look at our text right away in verse 1, the second half. Notice, as a shadow, it says, it can never, the shadow of the old covenant system, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You see the limitation again of the old covenant. It can never. It can never make perfect because it's a shadow, because it's not the real thing, because it's a foreshadow of the perfection and the glory that will be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what the Old Covenant and what the author does in the Old Covenant now, he describes how the Old Covenant is a shadow in three main ways. This will be on the screen beside me here. Notice this in verses 1 to 4. The Old Covenant is a shadow, first of all, of this, of perfection. The Old Covenant is a shadow of perfection. This is, this is verse 1. Verse 1 is explaining the Old Covenant system could not, could never make perfect the people that were under this system. Why? Because as we've learned in the last two weeks, the blood of a goat can only go so far. And that is why then sacrifices had to be repeated over and over again because the work was never fully finished. So the Old Covenant was not perfect, but the Old Covenant was a shadow of the perfection that was to come in the New Covenant with the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Secondly, it's a shadow of purification. The Old Covenant was a shadow of the purification that was to come. This is verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, Otherwise, if the sacrifices were completing the work, otherwise would they have not ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So the point here is, if the old covenant system resulted in true purification, then the conscience would be clean, and the sacrifices therefore would cease. But again, we learn here, the very fact that the animal sacrifices were ongoing was the proof itself that the people were not free from sin. The old covenant system was proof itself that the people were not ultimately pure before the Lord. But the old covenant was a shadow of the purification that would come from the Lamb of God that would be slain, that all sin would be removed as we hear again today within our text. So the old covenant, a shadow of perfection, a shadow of purification, and thirdly, a shadow of permanence. The old covenant is a shadow, foreshadow of the permanence that is to come. This is verse 3. Look at verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. And the author keeps making the same point. The old covenant was limited. It was temporary. It was imperfect. And we say, why, why, why? Verse 4 explains why. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See? So the old covenant was not permanent because of the reminder of the sacrifices continually happening, but it was a shadow of the once for all sacrifice that would be seen in Jesus Christ. So you see then, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, which was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, that blood from a goat covered sin, but it did not take away sin. It covered sin, but as Hebrews 9 says, it did not put away sin. This is the uh, act of the blood of the goats as a shadow of the once for all sacrifice coming in Christ. But that is why these chapters are so glorious. That is why these chapters are so magnificent. Because they highlight the massive deal found in the blood of Jesus Christ. 
It's the blood of Jesus Christ that fills in the shadow of the old. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that colors in the shadow of the old. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that substantiates the shadow in the old. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that moves us from looking at just an outline and trying to figure it out to be able to touch the real thing and the new covenant of Jesus Christ. So think of Thomas. When he doubted Jesus Christ as the lamb that was slain and the risen Savior. What does Jesus say to Thomas in John 20? Jesus says, put your finger here and see my hands. He says, put out your hand and place it in my side. The very acts of where Jesus' blood was shed. He's like, hey Thomas, check it out. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He's saying, Thomas, listen, I'm not a shadow, man. Thomas, I'm the real deal. Thomas, I'm the lamb of God that was slain and my blood was spilled, but I've been raised from the dead. And if you believe in me, you will find eternal life as well. Thomas, Thomas, I'm not a shadow. Thomas, I am the real deal. I am the real thing. I am the one who has come to substantiate the shadow. Thomas, I'm a huge deal. I'm a massive deal. I have come to change the very world that I chose to live in by the grace and the love of the Father, becoming a man, dying that death, and being raised from the dead. Thomas, don't you disbelieve. Thomas, you believe. That's how big a deal the new covenant is in Jesus Christ and the once for all sacrifice that is seen in him. Hey, Thomas, listen up. The Lamb of God has dealt with sin. The Lamb of God has been sacrificed that you might live. We are unpacking and understanding the once for all sacrifice. It's a big deal. It substantiates the shadow. Number two, it's God's deal. It fulfills his will. The once for all sacrifice is God's deal. Look at verse 5 now. Verse 5, the author says, consequently, again, notice this, the author is building his argument. We're just going verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Isn't it fun? It's so fun. It's so exciting. It's so right. Look at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now quoting Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings, sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure, God. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, as I said, these verses here, the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 is quoting from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. And these are taken from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The most commonly used translation in the first century. Again, it's called the Septuagint. It's simply the Hebrew translated into the Greek within the Old Testament. The most commonly used translation in the first century. And notice here now what Psalm 40 verses 6 to 8 become in light of the interpretation of Hebrews 10. Now this is beautiful here because the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 is interpreting for us the truth of Psalm 40. If we just read Psalm 40 on its own, we probably wouldn't get this much out of it, but the New Testament in Hebrews 10 is helping us discern and to know clearly what Psalm 40 verses 6 to 8 really meant. Now, here's a great tip when studying God's Word. Always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Whenever you can, look at the cross-references. You have a Bible with cross-references. It's very helpful. And study and compare. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. So often, false teaching is a result of ripping one verse out of context, taking that verse and making a whole doctrine out of it without allowing the rest of Scripture to comment on what that verse says. But false teachers, for their own self-gain and self-motivation, they desire to, again, forward their own incentive and their own glory. So they take this verse, they deceive people and to say, hey, look, 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 this is what God says. But in reality, any reasonable Bible student will be able to understand, to, to deal with that, dissect and say, dude, you're so wrong. You're so wrong. So always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and the author of Hebrews is doing that for us right now. It's very, very exciting. And so what Hebrews 10 becomes, as he quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, what this becomes is a prophetic statement of God's dissatisfaction of ritual sacrifice. From Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, and then in Hebrews 10, we find out that God is saying here, listen, listen, I'm not good with ritual. I'm not okay with this system being, being left as ritual. I'm going for relationship. I'm going for relationship with my people to the point I will send my son to die on their behalf. What this also becomes here in Hebrews 10, quoting these verses from Psalm 40, it becomes Christ's 
willingness to obey God's will to the point of sending himself, of agreeing to do this, that he might die, that ritual might be ended, that relationship might be opened. It's the understanding what God wants to do and the submission of the Son as well. Let's unpack these verses 5 to 7. Notice in verse 5. Sacrifices and offering God, you God, that's God, you God have not desired. God would not settle for a limited temporary atonement. God had a greater plan for sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice of unbelievable, astonishing love. Now notice in verse 5 as well, this is amazing. It says, and this is Christ speaking, we learn, but a body, speaking to God, but a body you have prepared for me. Think about that. Jesus Christ is speaking and saying to his Father, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, now, what is that referring to? That's referring to the glory of the incarnation, of the astonishing beauty and majesty, listen, of Christmas. This is why I love Christmas so much. It's not about presence under a tree. It's the presence of God being sent to earth in the form of a babe where the eternal God the Son in his humility and love chose to take on our flesh and become a child in a, in a lonely manger in a town of nobodies with an obscure couple of no fame whatsoever because he loved us so much. This is the wonder and the power and the glory of the incarnation where God has prepared a body for his eternal son, God himself, to take on, to become one of us as a babe, as, a, as an infant in the womb of this peasant girl who would be born and then would live. See, listen, love, when the incarnation is so glorious, a body prepared for Jesus Christ. That's why the angels sang. That's why the shepherds ran. That's why John the Baptist leaps in the womb of, of Elizabeth as Mary walks into the same room. That's why the wise men bowed down. And that's why Mary holds herself in wonder and awe and ponders these truths because could it be, could it be God the Son is dwelling now on earth. Listen, listen, at Christmas, the eternal Son of God takes on a body. This baby in Mary's womb takes on a body and the design of God and this little infant's body starts filling with blood and starts filling with a blood that would be perfect, perfect, a body filled with blood, this little child that would one day so soon become the blood of the Lamb of God. That makes Christmas a whole new level. That's why Christmas is so awesome. And to think, if you know me at all, you know at Christmas time, my favorite story probably is Simeon holding baby Jesus just as an infant. And Simeon knows what he's doing. And he picks up baby Jesus and he says, for all who would listen to the temple, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Oh God, my eyes have seen your salvation. What's happening right there? Simeon knows he's holding God. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, that's so, I mean, come on now. You're Simeon and you know you're holding God. Humbling? Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, beautiful? Ah, uh, yes. Incredible? Ah, uh, yes. He's holding God. He's holding God. Come on now. That's mind-blowing. He's holding God. He knows this. He knows he's holding the child that has the blood that will be spilled that will save the world. That will save the world from its sins. I mean, how, what, what do you do? How do you not feel Awesome, my eyes have seen your salvation. He says, the glory, God, it's your glory, it's your light. The child of God, filled with blood, the blood of the lamb. Look now at verse seven. Verse seven, it says, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. This is Christ, O God, I've come to do your will, O God. As it is written me in the scroll of the book, you see, the once for all sacrifice we're learning here was the very will of God. It was God's will to send his son to die for you and me. And notice also in verse 7, it was the submission of the son. God's will, Christ's submission, I will do it, Father. I, will, I have come to do your will. Jesus wasn't forced to the cross, he went willingly to the cross. And I love the end of verse 7. It says, as is written of me in the scroll of the book, the entire Old Testament loved ones point to Jesus Christ and the entire New Testament points back to Jesus Christ. 
Loved ones, God's plan, eternal plan, was sending his perfect son to die for sinful man. So listen, listen. The moment sin enters the world in Genesis 3, at that moment, God knew eternally what was going to happen. And God sends his rescue plan of salvation into motion. And the rest of the Bible is painting, the, 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 the whole Bible is one story, Jesus Christ. So Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. And from that moment, God sends his rescue plan in action, whether it's through Abraham, whether it's through Samuel, whether it's through David, whether it's through Isaiah, whether it's through Micah, doesn't matter. All the way through, when Jesus Christ comes, God is working his rescue salvation story because he loves us so much. And that's what's taking place because it was God's will and it was the submission of the Son of God. The death of Christ, ultimately the will of God. Why, 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 why? Because he loves us so much much and then verse 8 look at verse 8 now when he said above you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings that's recalling the law he says that there in brackets these are offered according to the law then he added behold i have come to do your will he abolishes the first in order to establish the second now what i love here is the author now provides his own Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on verses 5 to 7. I mean, he's telling us now exactly what it means, and he says what we already know because he's already told us. God is not good with the old, so he brings on the new. And this takes us to verse 10. Notice, and by that will, God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So notice in verse 10, notice this. God's will, the offering of Jesus' body, once for all sacrifice, never to be repeated again. And notice the result for those people who believe by grace through faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Notice the result. It says in verse 10 that we might be sanctified. That means set apart by God. Meaning in this context, it means saved positional sanctification. We are free from guilt of sin. And then notice this one too. It says, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ again, once for all. So what's happening right here in this verse is salvation is by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. And here's the question I ask you now. Have you lately picked up the doctrine, the truth, the glory of your salvation? Have you examined it for all its beauty and worth? Have you looked? It's God's will. It's the submission of, of Christ's Son. You're turning that jewel from angle to angle to look at this is the opportunity right now in Hebrews 9 and then in Hebrews 10 to look at it and say that is awesome. That is so beautiful. That is, that is absolutely glorious and marvelous. Look at what Jesus Christ has done for me. That is such a big deal. This is such God's deal. This is God's deal fulfilled his will. And as you keep looking at the jewel, you will find point number three. You will see this. It is Christ's deal. It is Christ's deal. It finished his work. Christ's deal, the once for all sacrifice is Christ's deal. Look at verse 11 now. And every priest stands daily at his service. I love the argumentation of the author. I love what he's doing. When we see it and step back far enough, it's so fun. I'll help you understand it right here. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. <coughs> but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, notice this. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now this truth has been stated in Hebrews 9 and 10, I can't tell you how many times. When the Bible is saying this, this much truth, uh, this often, the, the Holy Spirit wants to send us a message. There's something very, very important within this. Now notice in these verses, notice the contrast Notice the contrast in verse 11 of the priest standing daily, and then in verse 12, Christ sitting down. So if I'm you and I'm a Bible student, I'm circling stands daily, I'm circling sat down, I'm drawing a line between the two, and I'm making a note. This is the old versus the new right here. This is the difference between repeated sacrifices and the once for all sacrifices. You're like, I don't get it. Help me understand. Okay, well remember this. In the holy places under the old system, a chair was not even in the tabernacle. A chair was not there because there was no time to rest. Why? Because it symbolized that the work was never done. There was no true rest in the old covenant system because the work was never completed. 
Hence, the priest stood daily. He stood daily as a reminder of the imperfection of what they were doing. But, verse 12 says, everyone say but. But, and this is such a powerful and important word in but. But it says in verse 12, it says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now consider the power of this imagery. Christ sitting down. He dies the perfect death. He sits down, meaning it is finished, meaning curtain torn, meaning payment made. Priest stands daily because the work was never done. Christ dies and then sits down at the right hand of God. Please allow me right now to pound the gospel into your heart because this is what it is. When Jesus died, sin was paid. He sits down. And listen, listen, listen. Because Jesus Christ now rests, we as believers, believers in Jesus Christ, we also have rest in Christ, all because of Jesus Christ. Consider the context of Hebrews 10 now when we cross-reference Matthew 11. Let me read it for you. When Jesus says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He continues, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. And he finishes by saying, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Loved ones, in Matthew 11, Jesus isn't saying, hey, you worked a, a long day and you're really tired. I promise to give you a good night's sleep. That's what he's talking about. It's not physical rest. He's talking about spiritual rest. He's talking about salvation. For those people who are related with guilt and the sin is crushing them and killing them and they have no peace and they have no rest, Salvation in Jesus Christ is a theology of rest. Christ died and he sat down, so spiritually speaking, we can sit down as well. Loved ones, if you are saved in Jesus Christ, your sin has been paid. Listen, listen, in full, in full, you and I cannot earn one bit of righteousness in the Lord. You and I can do nothing to gain favor in the standing of God as our status as a child of God. That's all done in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you get the rest that is articulated with Jesus sitting down in Hebrews 10, here's what you'll stop doing. You'll stop trying to earn favor with God. You'll stop trying to do things thinking that God's now pleased with you in some way where he wasn't before. You'll stop trying to earn righteousness in the sight of God. That's theologically impossible to do. You can't do that. Only Christ can do that. Here's another thing you'll stop doing. You'll stop believing the lies of Satan about God's disapproval and disappointment with you. If you're one of these people that you hear these lies where God somehow in your life, God's like, oh, you stink. Oh, I'm so disappointed. Oh, I can't believe you did that. Get away from me, child. God's saying, I'm not good with you, and you're not it. If you think God's waving his finger as an angry parent and disappointment with you, you don't know your theology. That is impossible for God to do. It's impossible if you are saved and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Christ sat down. Because sin has been paid for. Receive the freedom. Receive the freedom today. Receive the freedom. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. In Jesus Christ, it's perfected. Perfected for all time. This is the power of the gospel. Stop trying to do external legalistic works in an attempt to somehow become a better person in the sight of God. Stop living like you can add to the cross. You can't add to perfection. Loved ones, be released from trying harder. I gotta try harder. I gotta pray more. I gotta do this. Why? So God will be happy with me. So God will see me good. So God will bless me. That is a crock. That is not true. Be released from trying harder, but be released here to love further. To love further. So here's, here's, what, here's what the truth says in God's word. When you see that Christ sat down, when you know you have rested in him for all of eternity, when you understand you can never be separated from God now, when you see his blood has literally washed every sin, past, present, and future, it doesn't motivate you to say, I'm going to earn more favor. It motivates you to say, he loved me so much. 
Now I give my whole life back to him, not out of earning something, because I love him so much for what he's done. You see, this is the fruit of genuine salvation. It's love. Because when you've been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ, it must transform you in love for Jesus Christ and a love for others. Hear me today. Because Jesus Christ sat down, because he rests, those washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, you too may rest. You too may rest. You may rest today because of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. This is why the once for all sacrifice is such a big deal. It's a big deal. It's God's deal. It's Christ's deal. And number four now this, listen, it's, it's our deal. The once for all sacrifice, it's our deal. Why? Because it guarantees forgiveness. The once for all sacrifice, it guarantees forgiveness. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 now the author says, For by a single offering, he who has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant, now he quotes Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, after the old covenant is now gone, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember, this is amazing, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now notice in verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected. That doesn't mean that as believers in Christ we're now perfect. We know we're not perfect. We know we still have sin. And yet it means in terms of we are no longer guilty in our sin. Our position before God is now innocent because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ now sits upon us. So we are perfected for all time for those who are being sanctified, those who are set apart now, who are pursuing heaven, who long for glory, who desire so much glorification because of the perfect sacrifice that has perfected us. We are no longer, again, under a guilty sentence. We are now innocent, and now we move and we long towards Jesus Christ. And what he has for us ultimately on that day when he returns or we see him face to face in heaven. The point of theology is when you've been washed by the blood, you are cleansed forever. Now let me say this. Let me say this. God remembers our sins no more. And we just learned about how the blood washes us and we can now rest. Now listen, we can still grieve the Holy Spirit within our temples. We can, we can grieve. Ephesians says that. And quenching God's spirit in 1 Thessalonians. We can grieve God's spirit in our temple. But listen, listen. In Christ, you can never remove God's spirit from your temple. Ever. Because it's God's temple. We have become the temple of God. The temple of the Lord. The Holy Spirit resides within us. So hear me again. This is important for some of you here. Once truly saved in Christ, you are always secure in Jesus Christ. If you are truly born again and saved and washed by the blood of the Lamb, there is nothing and no one who can ever remove you from being a sheep that belongs to the Good Shepherd. Now where some of us get confused sometimes is we forget parables like the parable of the sower. And Jesus gave us the parable of the sower because it explains there'll be certain individuals who respond to the gospel message with joy and delight, and for a short season, there seems to be fruit that looks real. But what the Bible tells us is just because someone initially has joy and responds favorably, the greatest, the greatest uh, testing of that will be time and as temptation and trial comes upon them. And specifically, Jesus said the parable men, some will fall away because of the pleasures of this world and some, when it gets hard to live for Jesus Christ, will also fall away. And what that tells us then, Jesus is, is preparing us and say, listen, listen, there will be some people who seem to respond to the gospel, but in reality, time will prove they they weren't genuinely, truly saved in Jesus Christ. It's not that they were saved and then lost their salvation. It means they were never truly saved because the theology all throughout Scripture is if you're truly saved, you are secure in Christ. And we know some people have a great start. They seem to fall away, but they come back. They come back and then they finish their life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, proving that what happened initially was real. I can think of people and examples in my mind right now Amazing start, a sad middle, but an incredible finish. 
Even in this room right now, I can think of people. That's awesome. The whole thing is here, though, if you're truly saved in Christ, you are secure. You are absolutely secure. The Holy Spirit brings an assurance of salvation, Ephesians 1. Romans 8 says, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, when you get these lies coming from the evil one, you just, you just speak it out loud and you say Romans 8 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In your face, Satan, these are the things that you say. You cannot say to me things that are not true. I'm a child of God. I'm bought by the blood, washed by the blood. I am his and he is mine. And you say it and you sing it and you pray it and you hold the truth and you say, take that, take that, take that. And you show the evil one what is true and real within your life as you are a child of God. Lest I get too distracted by this, but it's so much fun and so exciting. Let's get back to verse 15 now. Verse 15, it says this. It says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, now, now, let me just say this. Apparently, the author of Hebrews wants us to know who wrote God's word. This is like the third time in Hebrews 9 and 10 that the author of Hebrews is like, who wrote God's book? God did. The Holy Spirit did. You see that? I just want you to see that. I mean, this is very, very clear. God's word telling us that God wrote this book. He's quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah, yes, but God, yes. And now what we see in verses 15 to 18, now we see the power of the new covenant from the prophecy of Jeremiah 31. What I want to do to end this message right here, I want to give you four attributes of the new covenant found in verses 15 to 18. Four attributes of the new covenant. It's not exhaustive. It's what's here in front of us. Number one, notice this. The new covenant ends the old. The new covenant ends the old covenant. And verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them. He's speaking of the new covenant. So when Christ appears, the old is ready to disappear. And that again is why the temple is no longer present or effective. And 2,000 years ago when it ended, I said this last week, I want to say it again because I just love it so much and I pray you're encouraged by it. So the tabernacle moves to the temple. The temple is then destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple is then rebuilt, is enhanced and expanded. But then Jesus Christ comes and he's the temple. Once for all sacrifice, once for all sacrifice, temple no longer needed. AD 70, Romans and and Titus comes in. They destroy the temple, never been rebuilt because when the once and for all sacrifice comes, Jesus says it's no longer needed because the new has come. The old is gone and the new has come. The new covenant ends the old covenant. But amazingly, amazingly, part of why Hebrews is written is because there were Jews who were desperately trying to hold on to the old covenant system. They were trying to hold on to the legalistic ritual path and then the author here is going, what are you doing? What are you doing? The new has come. Let go of the old. Let go of the old. You want ritual over relationship? You want temporary over eternal you want repeated over once for all? Are you kidding me? He's pleading with them. Let go of the old covenant legalistic system. What saddens my heart so much is even in our day, there are parts of Christendom that seemingly are desperately trying to hold on to an old covenant system approach, approach at least of, 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 of legalism and rules and all these regulations and condemning people with guilt and laying on the ritual over the relationship that is so sad, that is so sad. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and make you look all pretty on the outside, but inside you are full of greed and, and evil and selfishness. God save us from ever becoming this external show but on the inside, we're corrupt and without true transformation. The whole reason Jesus brought the new is that the old would be gone and we are set free from this process. If I don't do this, then all of a sudden God's not pleased and all that garbage that comes really isn't the gospel at all. The new covenant ends the old. Number two, the new covenant transforms the heart. Look at verse 16 too. It says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Now this is so beautiful. Just look at that verse for a second, that phrase. The old covenant dealt with external cleansing, temporary and insufficient. But notice the prophecy of Jeremiah. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. So listen, listen. Genuine salvation does this. Genuine salvation in Christ transforms the very heart of a person. Genuine salvation, the minds become new within that person. This is why genuine salvation, loved ones, within genuine salvation, there must be some form of transformation. 
And not just some form of beautiful transformation. If you're truly justified in Christ, you must start becoming sanctified in Jesus Christ. You can't be justified and then nothing happens. So as I've been saying now for 10 years in some form or another, I'm okay with a bad day in Christ or a bad week or a bad month where things aren't going as you would hope and even a bad season of a year. Where I start to get worried is when you call me you have a bad decade where there's been no fruit for 10 years and you say you're saved in Jesus Christ. Not looking for perfection, not looking for having all things together, not at all. But just if there's been no fruit and no transformation and no genuine affection and no growth and no obvious in, internal change in the Lord Jesus for 10 years, I'm like, are you sure? Are you, are you sure you know the Lord? Because if he's truly saved you, he transforms you because he puts his law in our hearts and he puts them and writes them on our mind. This is beautiful, sincere transformation. And this is why we love glory stories in our church so much. We love glory stories because the person's walking along. We've seen these so recently too. That I was walking in death. Jesus Christ saved me. And then literally I was a different person. I became new. I'm alive. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I can see. I can hear. I can feel. I can think. Everything's changed. I now love. God's made all the doubt. I'm not perfect, but God is making me perfect. And just, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And what I love so much, too, I can, I can, I can think of people again. And I, I remember situations where I've watched people walk into this church, and you can just tell by looking at them they're dead. You can just tell in their eyes. There's a glaze. There's kind of a, a grayness about them and just the way they talk and just the lack of feeling for the Lord or, or the lack of understanding of what life is really about. But then they're here and by some act of God's grace and mercy, he changes them. He transforms them. He makes them literally new. And then you look at them afterwards. Amen. You look at them afterwards and you're like, you look different. You literally look different. There's light in your eyes. There's a joy on your face. There's understanding in your mind and heart. And you are demonstrating a life that is trans. Why? Because when Jesus makes someone new, he makes them new. He writes his law on their heart and he writes it on their minds. And when you go from death to life, people should be able to tell, loved ones. People should be able to notice on some level that you were dead, but now you are alive. This is what the new covenant does. Ends the old, it transforms the heart. Thirdly, it erases sin from the mind of God. This is amazing. Look at verse 17. Like, where's this coming from? Verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. How awesome is that? I mean, how awesome is that? Because of Christ and only because of the sacrifice of Christ, when I receive this gift of grace through faith, my sin is erased from the mind of God. I mean, just, just, just think about that for a second. Think about that. Here again is the gospel. In Jesus Christ's love, because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the new covenant, sin, our sin is erased from the mind. Again, again, we can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, but you cannot remove yourself from the Lord. This is when we stop trying to earn favor with God. God wants to set people free today. He really, really does. Listen, listen, in Christ, forgiveness is guaranteed. Again, so when we're saved, we love the Lord. And we seek to love others. Now, Paul answers the question, well, if sin is a race, does that mean I can just keep on sinning? Well, technically, genuinely saved in Jesus Christ, the answer has to be on a theological level. Technically, whatever sins we do commit, they will be forgiven if we're genuinely saved in Jesus Christ. But theologically, if we're truly saved in Jesus Christ, Paul says, because grace abounds, should we sin all the more? By no means, by no means. Can someone who's died of sin still live in it? You see, so the answer is, if you're truly saved in Jesus Christ, the last thing you want to do is to keep displeasing the Holy Spirit that's within you. When you're saved in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit in your temple is like, are we going to keep letting that darkness come in? Oh, come on, please don't let that sin come out. Oh, no, that's awful. Man, that guy just cramps my style. Please get him out. Get him out of the temple. I don't want that stuff in here. No, hatred and gossip and idolatry and greed. Oh, no, get it. And the Holy Spirit in you is like, we're not good with that. We're not good with that. We're not going to keep on sinning that grace may abound. The Holy Spirit's like, we're going for the Lord, so sweep out the house. Sweep out the house, and let's get lo loving and moving towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the genuine follower and seasons will go up and down. But ultimately, ultimately, sanctification is like a yo-yo walking up the stairs. Ultimately, the trajectory must be like this. 
And there'll be seasons where it get tough and we get discouraged, but ultimately it must be going on an upwards trajectory because that's what justification does. It results in sanctification that ends in glorification. Praise God, hallelujah. The new covenant erases the sin of the mind of God. And lastly this, the new covenant includes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Look at verse 18. The beauty of the argumentation of the author of Hebrews. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. See, if sin's been dealt with, the once for all sacrifice has done it. There's no need for any more sacrifices because Jesus Christ has literally paid it all. Loved ones, the once for all, it fills in the shadow, it fulfills God's will, it finishes Christ's work, and I'm praying because of this, it's firing us up with love. Now some of you might come to verse 18 and say, well, well now what do I do? Now what? So what do we do now? Well, that's, that's verse 19. And for that, you have to come back next week, all right? But let me just say one word. Look at one word. Look at therefore. Therefore, in verse 19, that is the hinge that takes the doctrine of Hebrews, all of it, especially 9 and 10, and now starts to say, if we get the blood of Christ, now we'll see the outworking and the practical application of what that looks like in our lives and in the church. It is beautiful, and that's where we begin then next week. Hebrews 10, Lord willing, verse 19. Therefore live like this. Therefore, be like this. Therefore, love like this. The blood of Jesus, loved ones, once for all. Awesome. Awesome. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray. I pray we are filled with love. I pray we are filled with joy. I pray, Lord, we are filled with wonder in the gospel that the sin of our lives has been erased from the mind of God because of the once for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. What a big deal this is. Oh God, that it was your deal. Oh Jesus Christ, it was your deal as well, Lord, to finish your work. And now, through faith, through faith, and if you're here right now and you do not know Jesus Christ, this can become your deal. Forgiveness can become your deal. If you turn from sin, if you call out to Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, you are Lord. Lord Jesus, you are my Savior. You lived, you died, you rose from the dead. I want you to become Lord and Savior of my life. Lord Jesus Christ, save me from my sins. Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me. Lord Jesus Christ, set me free. Set me free that I may live for you, that I might love you, that I might love others, that I might know salvation, that my heart may be transformed literally from death to life. You can call it to him today. At any moment, any time, you call out to Jesus Christ and pray. You pray these prayers and you ask him. And if that's real, you will never be the same again. It's happening all over the world. It's happening today. It's happening here. God is building his church. Jesus Christ is transforming lives. And so we sing and so we love. And, and loved ones, even just as you're there in a place of quiet, maybe your head is bowed, we're, we sang that beautiful hymn before this message started. We're going to sing it again. And I want you to just listen to the words and respond to your Savior now in quiet and in reverence. Just Thank him. Love him. The hymn says there is a fountain filled with blood coming from Emmanuel's veins. Just think about that. There's that child filled with blood in his veins. And for those who plunge under this flood, the hymn says, the freedom, the joy, you will never see a guilty stain again. That's, that's incredible. That's what the blood of Jesus Christ does. Thank him today for that. Don't let this day go by without being humbled and in awe of the blood that has set you free.